I think what helps in these faithful, courageous steps into the unknown is the number of times we've done it before, because it starts to become just a way of life, right? It's like, I have stepped out in the dark before, and yes, it hasn't always gone the way I thought it would, but it's always taken me further. And here I am because of that. Hey, 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 so glad you're here. This is Tracking Yes, and you are exactly where you're meant to be. I'm your host, Liz Wilson, coach, creator, and round-the-clock philosopher. And this, my friends, is where the magic happens. Join me and my guests for stories that will inspire you to dial up your curiosity, fine-tune your courage and wisdom, and create an empowered relationship with whatever's happening now. Brian Pearson is an author, musician, and former Anglican priest, and host of the eclectic podcast, The Mystic Cave. Join us for a conversation about his choice to leave the institution of religion in pursuit of his deepening relationship with wonder. It's a courageous story of self-trust, tracking God, bucking the system, and eventually walking away from an institution which had become too small for the depth and breadth of his curiosity. Brian, I wanted to have you on the show today because we've only met recently, but what I love about your story, very much a tracking yes story, is it is the story of following your own curiosity on a spiritual path and being willing to leave comfort, to leave security, to leave certainty and keep going. And in your case, that was after 38 years as an Anglican priest, three years ago, Choosing to leave the church because it wasn't big enough for your curiosity and where it was leading you. Yeah, that's right. And so, first of all, that's not a a common or culturally conforming normal choice. And I imagine it was empowering and freeing and also fraught. Yes. And in fact, so I, I could only take it in stages. I start my uh, my podcast with a memoir about loving the church and, and leaving it. And I, and I tell this story because this did not happen to me all the time. I didn't have a spooky kind of faith where weird things happened. But about two or three years before I left the church, I was in a church service at the cathedral. Uh, and I'm sitting with a bunch of clergy. We're all packed into the front few rows. And the bishop is preaching. He's droning on and on. And for me, it I had such an ambivalence about these kind of services because we drove we dressed up in, you know, uh, well we looked like we were out of out of some kind of historical movie. Like it didn't like what are we doing in these robes? I knew the clergy personally. I knew that most of them couldn't stand each other, and yet we all had to be you know nice and holy with one another. So I'm sitting in the church with all this stuff in the background. Going here we are again, going through this again, and I kid you not from the depths, from somewhere inside, it was like a voice saying to me, when you go, you'll be done. (laughs) It was like, what the fuck? What? Like, who? And it just, like, where did that come from? And I don't believe, like, I don't have a belief that says God speaks to us, you know, directly. 
but something was coming up from the inside, articulating it as, as a voice, as if from outside of me, saying, when you go, you'll be done. I didn't know what it meant. And I found it very scary because it sounded like some kind of, you know, prophetic voice saying, this is what's going to happen. You know, you don't have any choice in this. And I realized a number of things. Immediately, I, I began to look around and said, yeah, but I, I love these people. <laughs> I love all this, which wasn't entirely true. And what does it mean? Go, like, where am I going to go? <laughs> like, I, I don't understand what this is. Wait, I'm going? <laughs> what? So, um, so I, I could only take it in stages. So by the time I left the church, I left quite naturally because it was, it was time to retire. And I decided I'm not, I had some issues with our bishop and, and issues uh, with had lots of issues with the church and its authority structure and all that. But I thought, I'm not sacrificing my pension in these last few years. I'm going to live it out. And then apparently when I retire, I'm going to be done. So I didn't know what that meant. But when I retired, I just started to withdraw, thinking, well, when it's time or if it's time to go back again, maybe just, you know, on a Sunday morning, I will. Three years later, I've never gone back. And what's happened is my world has opened up. It's invited me out to meet a whole new community of people like yourself. All these people are living this wonderfully enlightened, exciting life. And after the first few months after my retirement, when I was kind of frightened about what am I going to do with this newfound freedom? Well, actually, it hasn't been an issue. I've, I haven't wanted to go back to church. I've wanted to keep in touch with my friends within the church. That hasn't changed because that's personal. But, but I'm done. I'm done with the church. And I'm loving the journey that just keeps getting bigger and bigger and opening up in brand new ways that I hadn't even anticipated. And when you say done with the church, do you mean the institution of religion? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, done with being the church's official representative as what happens when you're ordained. In the case of, of the Anglican Church, you know, you, you wear the collar that makes you look like a, a Catholic priest and um, you're identified when you're out in the public. The, the, for clergy, you represent the church. And I don't want to represent the church anymore. It's, it's interesting. I still am hungry for the, the spiritual journey and all its many manifestations. And we, and we can talk about that. But I think the church in the modern age has lost all credibility and moral authority to talk about anything, have anything to say about anything. And wow. even though this wasn't specifically, um, most recently, the, the Anglican Church wasn't implicated in this most recent uh, uh, round of discoveries around residential schools, but the Anglican Church was a part of that system. As the world, as across Canada, as we saw grave sites now being identified, and and the church not being forthcoming and being not being cooperative, and then we've learned not paying the money they were supposed to pay according to the truth and reconciliation uh, hearings, like the church, where do they get off having anything to say about anything to anybody about what's right and wrong and what is truth and what isn't true? So I just don't want to be that guy anymore who's supposed who's speaking on behalf of the church, because no matter how liberal I was in my own theology, no matter how I would like to think kind of socially uh, aware I was, the church I served was not. 
Okay, I want to go back in time a bit to to track the yes of how you got to the place of leaving the church. First of all, you got into the church. So what led you there? Yeah, it, good question. In some ways, I've been in the church all my life until about three years ago, because I grew up in the church. You know, I went to Sunday school, and I was just part of the church. So, And we moved all the time when I was a kid. So every time we would move to a new city, we would connect to the new neighborhood by finding the church. And we and we would find an Anglican church, and we'd settle in there. And um, it was mainstream enough that it meant I could just, like, I could be smoking dope with my friends on Friday night and Sunday morning, go to the youth group, <laughs> because it wasn't like fundamentalist churches. We were, we were very invested in the world. But here's what I'd want to say about the decision to, because I've been thinking about this, the decision actually to be ordained, to become a priest. In many ways, it was it was this uh, an easy decision to make because I already knew the church world. It wasn't like going out and joining a corporation and having to learn a new job with a new um, community. This was the this these were already my people, and I knew that within the church a lot of my abilities could be could be used. I, I was pretty uh, easy, always talking in front of the class, which, you know, in school. So teachers didn't always like that. I was a bit of an entertainer. So it meant the church would love that. <laughs> you know, um, I loved the big questions. I loved life's big questions. And 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 the possibility that there, that there was one narrative, one cosmic story, and the church represented that. I thought I, maybe I could use some of my, you know, musical abilities. I, I wasn't sure. And so it, it was kind of this easy decision. Doors kept opening and I made decisions. Here's a story, though, I have to tell you. I went to summer camp, uh, worked on summer, summer camp after high school, and I was on maintenance. And Dan Hill, the singer-songwriter, was 17 years old. He was a counselor in training. And he was there as well for the summer. And even then at 17 years old, he walked around and there would be this whole gaggle of young girls hanging onto him wherever he went. And like there would be like this clump of campers following him around. Anyway, we also knew that he was a songwriter because every so often he would he would take off for the evening. And, and what he was doing was playing cottages up in cottage country in Ontario. And so we were aware of this, but never thought anything of it. Until after my first year in seminary, I did a 12-week residency as, an, as a student chaplain in a hospital. And then I, I had a month off and I was painting the apartment with Chum FM on uh, the radio station. And they were going to interview this new Canadian rising star singer-songwriter. And they were going to play his whole new album and they were going to have him comment on every one of his songs. And it was Dan Hill. I thought, I, I know Dan Hill. I, I don't even think he's that good. And he's allowed to do that. <laughs> he is allowed to be on Chum FM with a new album. And it just haunted me because I had left all my music stuff really behind when I joined the church. So as I'm painting the apartment for this hour, I'm kind of thinking, it changed everything. I went back to school and I, I lasted like two weeks. And I finally went to the dean and I said, I have to quit. I'm not taking a year off. I've got to quit because I've got to I've got to figure out this music thing. 
And I, I was terrified. I was absolutely terrified. I quit. And I worked up a set of songs. I did a demo tape at a recording studio, shopped it around to the record companies. I did all that stuff. But here's the thing. What I saw of the music business is that I could be in it for a very long time and never get to do my songs. I met all these musicians who were playing the Holiday Inn circuit and playing cover tunes. And I saw how hard that life looked compared to the life in the church, which I knew. It was like, these are my people. This is my community. And so after a year of, of, being, of working away on the outskirts of the music business, I went back. I went back to school and back to the church and, and didn't think of it again until, it, until I found myself 20 years ago, I would be listening to a concert. Like David, I remember this, David Francie, this beautiful, he was, he was a storyteller and a singer-songwriter. And as we're rising to applaud him at the end of his concert, I had this lump in my throat and I felt I was going to start crying. And I thought, what, what is that? That was the musician I'd left behind. And he caught up with me like 20 years ago. So the stuff doesn't leave you, right? That yeah. the, the, the muse, you know, you can try to shut it off and say, no. And so, so I guess my point is, in choosing to be in the church, I, in some ways I chose the easy route because I knew I, knew I could do it. I, uh, it was familiar to me, but I was saying no to other things that my soul wanted me to do. And one of them was music. And, and what made it even worse in some ways was by choosing a career in the church, it was like I never had to leave home because I inherited every congregation I was in. I inherited surrogate moms and dads who would kind of love me up like a mom and dad would. And uh, that prevented me from being, from taking more risks and being a little bit more gutsy. So it was, it was really like choosing not to leave home. I, and I just, I, well, I look back and think I did some really good work. Like I, in the church, I, I feel proud of a lot of the things I did. But there was something from the inside out, that voice that said to me, when you go, you'll be done, was the part of me that said, it's now time for you to leave home. Yeah, okay. So so part of your choice was safety and certainty. And, and I imagine there was also some belief system that had you choose that path. And so what was that? And how has it evolved over time? Uh, what I grew up with was mainstream Christianity, which is pretty drab. It doesn't ask a lot of you. Just you go to church and you hear the sermons and, you know, as a teenager, you go to the youth group. But then when we moved from Montreal to Toronto in 1969, we made connections with our local church. And there was this almost fundament fundamentalist uh, charismatic youth group. And it was the Jesus people days when people were ditching drugs and choosing Jesus. And there was... It, oh, there was, I missed that. I missed that era. <laughs> it was probably sorry. around, but I did not realize there was an era where that was happening. Well, so many of the members of our youth group now had, I mean, some of them had dropped out of school. They were taking major drugs and uh, were headed in a direction that might have killed them. I mean, some of them would say that now. Um, and so when they found Jesus, it was as extreme an experience for them as taking drugs was. So that now they became street preachers and trying to convert everybody. 
And, and it's sort of like what happens in an addiction when somebody gives up one thing but doesn't really do the work, so now they're addicted to something else. And that's and and so here was this extreme youth group where we had extreme views. We were not sure that our parents were saved and that they were going to go to heaven, even though, in my case, they brought me to church all their life. So I had to I had to work that through. Um, and that it was a way it was a way of having a rebellion within the church where we could even be more righteous than our parents. <laughs> <laughs> a funny way of, of a rebellion. But then and it went did up, you, yeah. were you, would you call yourself a fundamentalist? Like, did you absolutely have a very, how, first of all, how would you define fundamentalist? If you're going to, if you are going to say that you were, then please define it first. So a fundamentalist uh, would be someone for whom the basic Christian beliefs are non-negotiable. Jesus died for my sins, and the only way that I can be saved is to accept Jesus Christ as my personal Lord and Savior. I mean, that would be the that would be the pattern. Um, so fundamentalists would say, if, if you don't do that, you're not going to heaven. Very right. judgmental. Yeah, yeah, like there's us and them. That's right. But I went off to university, took a liberal arts degree, and within a year, I was ditching the fundamentalist faith because I loved the intellectual inquiry. I loved asking the big questions. I took a religious philosophy course with a Jewish professor, and I thought, he is actually more righteous than most of, most of the Christian people I know. And it kind of blew my world. They sort of brought me back to reality, which was, yeah, a lot of those beliefs are kind of, you know, wild, and it gives you a sense of power because you can judge everybody else. But once I began asking the big questions, uh, that's where I wanted to live. And my soul wanted me to live there, where it's okay if you don't have the answers. It's okay if you ask the questions. So when I actually got, by the time I, I was ordained, I was what you would call a liberal Christian. That is, I was, I was happy with the traditions and the beliefs and the practices of the church, but I, I needed a certain latitude within that to ask questions, to believe what I wanted. Um, but I knew my job as a priest was to represent the traditions. So some of my questions I would have to keep to myself, you know, and because you don't preach the doubts um, or what are you doing in the job? And were you aware that this disconnect, I guess it sounds like a disconnect was starting to happen? I was aware fairly early on, and I think I pushed a lot of that aside because I just, I wanted the job and thought I could do a good job. But it meant that my preaching was not as bold and challenging as it ought to have been. There's an expression that uh, the job of the preacher is to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. I was often preaching to comfort the afflicted letting them know God loved them, you know, that, that, and that there was a place for us all in the world, all the stuff that would comfort us. The prophetic voice, which is the voice that says, and if we're going to believe this, it comes with some responsibilities about, are we protecting the world? Are we protecting one another in terms of our human rights? All those things, which I felt, it was harder for me to preach it. And I think it's because of the, of getting co-opted, you know, by I'm really in these congregations with a bunch of my moms and dads, you know, very hard to preach prophetically to your own parents, right? When you haven't emotionally or psychologically, when I hadn't really left home. So that part I had to keep to myself, or I would talk about it amongst my friends. I remember we'd, when Nicaragua was a, was a hot 
deathbed issue. And many progressive Christians were, were saying, we have to support these people in this revolution. I knew that I could not do that, even though I agreed with them, because I'd been co-opted enough that I, I didn't want to be uh, afflicting the comfortable with, you know, with now the challenges. If you're going to live in this world, you're going to have to take sides sometimes. You're going to have to actually say, the earth deserves not only our respect and love, but we have to protect it. And, and, and that means challenging assumptions, you know, about uh, how people live their lives. And you call yourself a Christian, and, and you're going to pollute the earth, and you're not going to care about, you know, the earth. So, so that's what I kind of gave up by choosing the easy route. Well, it, yeah, because I'm seeing, again, with the music first, yeah, and, and now with you, you kind of left your authentic self, a part of your authentic self, because you went, that's going to be too hard and too uncomfortable. Yeah. And, and now, so I'm going to choose a comfortable route. Yeah. And then in that comfortable route comes an opportunity to do what is hard and to do what is uncomfortable. And again, you make the choice yeah. to do what is comfortable. I'm going to comfort the afflicted, yeah. but I am not going to afflict the comfortable. Yeah. Okay. So, so I assume that started to eventually yeah. not work for you. The issue the issue that finally I could not bear it any longer was, um, so I was the priest at a downtown parish of St. Stephen's in Calgary, where a good proportion of our congregation were from, broadly speaking, the gay community, right? We, that's sort of the language we used at, at the time. And we didn't, we didn't think of them as them. They weren't part of us. They were just part of us. And so we knew them. They were part of our community. And, um, at a time when uh, when couples, same-sex couples in particular, were seeking to be married, and that right was was granted by the federal government, the church was still debating it, like whether this was well, what does the Bible say about this? And all across Canada, in cities all across Canada, the Anglican Church was starting to come around and say, "Of course, we should be able to perform these these marriage ceremonies. This is part of our vocation. This is part of our calling in a modern age." But here in Calgary, we had a new bishop who said that was never going to happen. He wanted to have lots of dialogue. He wanted us to talk about it and have Bible studies about it. But it became perfectly clear he had no intention ever of giving his permission. So until that point, the issues, I could always be, I could have my strong opinions among my friends. I could even allow some of that out in sermons. But when it came to this issue, this, this was not ideology. This was my friends. This is now dealing with people who could not be married in their own church because of a, a bishop had the power and truly the authority. Nobody could challenge him to say, no, it's not going to happen here. So we petitioned him, we went to see him, we had many conversations with him, and when it became clear that he was intransigent, this was not going to happen, at the same time, a couple came to see me to say, would you marry us? And it was uh, a woman and her trans partner, and uh, met with a few of my priest friends, uh, liberal friends, and we said, we got to do this, we got to do this anyway. So we kept it quiet because we didn't want him stepping in before the day and blowing it. And on the day we did the wedding uh, for them in my church, there were six of us clergy who all stood up and said the words we were not allowed to say, which is called the nuptial blessing. We blessed 
their marriage. Now, we didn't do the legal part because we didn't want there to be a legal challenge if, you know, for someone to come back and say, well, they're not legally married because the priest wasn't allowed to do it. So we had a marriage commissioner do the legal part. And then the sixth clergy stood up and said the, the blessing, which we're not allowed to do. And um, of course, as we knew what would happen, the bishop got wind of it, called us in, hauled us, you know, in on the carpet and said, essentially, you do that again and you're fired. And, you know, was able to quote the canon law that would govern that. And, uh, and I knew at that point that I'm done. Like, uh, because even though we made this symbolic gesture, we could not fight the authority of it. And in the modern age, it, I don't care what the organization is, in the modern age, for one person to be given that much authority without any accountability, I just thought, okay, this is, this is absolutely over. And, and any more, quite apart from all the other issues that the church was facing about residential schools and everything else, it was like this church no longer has the moral authority to make a decision on anyone's life. And I am not going to represent them. But I had two years to go or something, three years to retirement. And I thought, but I'm not going to give them my give away my pension. I'm gonna I'm gonna hang in until the end, but I know when I go, I'm gone. Yeah. Okay. First of all, what was that like for you? What was it like to give yourself that permission? to perform that ceremony. It, like, what was that day like for you? It felt incredibly freeing. It felt, I'm now acting on my authority. And in that moment, I had no doubts. I, had, I wasn't afraid. I thought, if he fires us, he fires us. The only other moment, I'm sorry, and this may take us further, further from where you want to go, but... Um, in 2003, I left a 21-year marriage, and it was that had been my second marriage, and and uh, it was a very unhappy marriage for 21 years. We had three kids, and I kept thinking, I can't, I can't be divorced twice. I mean, I'm a priest; I'm not allowed. I mean, I was technically allowed, but I thought, no, my my credibility will be shot. And it was the most painful and difficult decision of my life to walk out of that marriage. And it was to this day. I mean, when I go back to those specific memories, it's, it's not re-traumatizing, but I feel it all over again. What, when, when people ask me, and, and the men's groups that I've worked with, when sometimes men would talk about, when did you become a man? And it wasn't that crass sense of your first sexual conquest of a young, it was, when did you man up? When did you arrive as an adult? I arrived when I left that marriage. And so that was my first experience of that same freedom I felt when I did that same-sex uh, marriage, that um, it was taking my life into my hands. And the spooky part of that Within a year, a year and a half of having walked out of my marriage, and it was public, and it was messy in terms of my, my ex was telling her story everywhere amongst my congregation, and I'm not telling my story. I think this is none of their business. A year and a half after that happened, men began appearing at my door, some of them walking, literally walking in off the street, thinking, here's the church, uh, they must have a minister I can talk to. And these are men whose marriages were breaking up, whose, voc whose careers were in a shambles. They didn't know what to do with their lives. And it became this ministry among, among midlife men. And I thought, is this how the universe works? When we do our work, 
when we finally do our soul work, and and in this case, in a major way, I was now claiming my own authority, left the marriage. If that was going to sacrifice my ministry, so be it. Was coming into myself, suddenly a portion of the world wanted me to be there for them as they needed to do the same thing. How does that even work? You know, but that's the big experience I'd had that that led to then when we stood up to the bishop by doing this same-sex blessing, but then it felt liberating. I thought, I, I, I know this feeling. This is the feeling of claiming my own authority. And it wasn't just a fuck you to the bishop, although it was a fuck you to the bishop. Even more so, it was, I stand here now in my own shoes and my own place, and I'm immovable. Like it was, it was that kind of strength that I had not known all those years when I was trying to placate the church and be what it wanted me to be. And so, so then the bishop hauls you in and says, you do that again and you're fired and you say, well, I'm not giving up my pension. So I'm staying for two, two or three more years. Yeah. How many more years? Three years. Okay. okay. Yeah. It was uh, re- retirement was already within sight. Yeah. So in that, because because you're having these experiences now where you are not going out of your authenticity and you're willing to be uncomfortable and you're willing to take risks yeah. and you're willing to yeah you know your own afflict your own comfort let's say okay yeah. and so <laughs> and so this is you're coming into your own sovereign agency and self and you're feeling the power of that and the freedom of that but i'm going to stay yeah. here for three more years because practically logically all of that so what was that three years like for you like were you a rebel were you towing the line like how did that go for you um i've had almost nothing to do with the bishop and because he was conflict averse to begin with that was fine with him so it meant i was increasingly free in my preaching in the way I did my ministry to be myself. And I, I felt I'd been moving that direction for you know 15 years anyway, so it wasn't entirely new. But there was a boldness in, well, for instance, we were doing things we were not authorized to do. Um, we were rewriting the Bible readings for Sundays, because here we were a liberal church, and we we're preaching essentially nonviolence and equality amongst all peoples and respect for the earth. And then you read some horrific passages from the Bible, which undermine all of that. Besides which, if you use the the traditional translations, God is always a man. And at some point you go, well, how can we talk about gender equality if God is always a man? So we began rewriting the, the Bible according to the beliefs we felt we had received from the Bible. And so whenever we could avoid talking about God as a man and just avoid pronouns altogether, uh, we did that. Let me just check in. When you say we, who's we? The church is, is run, the Anglican church is run by the rector, who's the priest, plus church wardens, and they're elected or appointed. They're the elders. They're the... So I didn't do anything under the table. I let them know what I was doing at all times. So there was we in terms of they approved of the project. But then I also gathered an editorial board. So as I was writing these things, and especially as I got towards the end of it, I had them vet it. And these were people who had a good literary background and people who would be really sharp in terms of 
picking up stuff that I may have missed. So, so the editorial board helped give it shape at the end, but the whole congregation through the church wardens was, they knew what we were doing and approved it. So it was our way of being honest to ourselves. Um, when there were verses, like for instance, in the Psalms, when it talks about, I hate those who don't love God's law. Well, actually, that's sort of a contradiction. You're going to hate somebody if they don't love God. So we would simply say, I have a hard time with them, or um, I can't abide those. I don't want to spend time with those who don't love God's law, which is entirely human. That doesn't require that we hate them. We were, we were tweaking the Bible, and I didn't, I mean, I, I had zero authority to do that. We were rewriting the prayers of the official Anglican prayer books. Not allowed to do that, but for instance, um, the, I think one of the, one of the most uh, dramatic examples of all this is on Good Friday, the churches read a, a, pass, a long passage from the Gospel of John, and in the Gospel of John, it's quite clear that uh, whoever wrote the Gospel of John felt the Jews killed Jesus. It's their fault. That's the way that it's a very anti-Semitic book. And so when you read the passage of Scripture about the crucifixion of Jesus, uh, it takes you right back to that root anti-Semitism, unless you're willing to go in and rewrite some of that stuff. So instead of the Jews did this, the Jews did that, believing this is actually, we're talking about what people do when they encounter the divine and it makes them uncomfortable, they reject it. And that's how Jesus got killed. So we just talked about the people or the crowds. We, to we took it away from the Semitic references in order that it could live more deeply, you know, as a story. So we were doing all this and I didn't care that I didn't have permission to do it. And I was prepared to go to the to the wall for it. Like, like if the bishop, you know, said, hey, what are you doing? You're not allowed to do this. Then, okay, I would face him because I just felt these are things I had to do. Yeah. Yeah. Whew. I'm just, just taking in what you said there, because I'm, I'm really feeling the incredible integrity um, that you're moving with in your life. Mm -hmm. And and willing to willing to suffer consequences, like willing to speak truth to authority, speak truth to power. Yeah, but um, I wasn't willing to be fired at the, at the end of the day. <laughs> I wasn't allowed to do any of that stuff. So I just did that under the radar. Couldn't really be fired for that. And in fact, when the bishop came, we didn't change the readings. We just kept the readings, that the ones we had rewritten, and he barely noticed. So I thought, okay, got away with that. Yeah. But but now you're in a place where to keep living in the world you're living in, you've got to get away with stuff, which is a yeah. different orientation than you're supported, you're collaborating, you're co-creating. Yeah. Now it's like you're working at odds almost with yeah. the with structure, the with the institution within yeah. which you're operating. Well, well, that's right, and 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 um, and and as as you and I have talked about before, for me, the world and in particular the spiritual journey was way way bigger than what any particular institution could contain, and any 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 religious tradition that tries to contain it, like the Christian Church has done, to say we have found the truth. Not only do we have the answers for you, we have the questions. Is called the Catechism in the Catholic tradition. 
we'll tell you the questions and then we'll tell you the answers. <laughs> like, well, what the fuck? Maybe that's, maybe that's not my question, but they don't ask because they have found it all out for you. And now your job is to receive. So it felt really in those last years, I just felt free to do the kind of work I've, I'd always wanted to do. And, and the congregation was flourishing. I mean, I'm not sure how much they were conscious or consciously aware of the changes. I would tell them about it. We'd, when we finished, it took us years when we finished the rewriting of all the, those parts of the, the Bible we read on Sundays, they filled four massive four-inch binders. Like it was a massive job. And so on my, uh, my last Sunday, I wanted to, like when, when a priest starts in a new parish, uh, there's something called an induction where they symbolically, they give you a Bible and they say, like, preach the word of God in our midst. They give you a chalice and a patent and, and will say, bring us the, the body and blood of Christ. What, they give me all the stuff, including keys and things. So I thought when I leave, I'm going to give all the stuff back. And so when I gave the Bible back, we brought in four, four inch thick binders of the work we had done. This was the Bible now I'm handing back to you. You gave me it was you gave me just a Bible and you know that just would fit into one cover. But because of the work we've done, you're getting back a new translation. And to my knowledge, that's still being used. So it was a good few years. <laughs> okay. So I think as humans, we all at some point play with this question of, do I believe in God? And if I believe in God, what is God to me? Yeah. And, and so where you are standing today in your life, 38 years in the church as a priest, three years out of the church and out of the institution of religion, like you're done with that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, and actually, before I ask this question, let's talk about you being done with that, because what you're what I hear that your your issue with it is, is that it is a structure that is designed around certainty that yeah. values certainty and does not value questioning and curiosity of what of what's already written. Like I, I, I listened to one of your podcasts where you said. The Bible is written. The scriptures are written. It's written. It's done. Check, period. They're not an organic, growing, evolving thing. They're yeah. set. And, yeah. and, and that's the certainty. And that's what you said about they have the questions and they have the answers. And you are a passive receiver and obeyer of yeah. this information. Yes? Yeah. 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 And, uh, and there's something about... Um, you know that the in the case of the church, the early church was trying to hang on to an experience. I mean, some of it was the memory of the historical person of Jesus. Like they were trying to remember what he had said, and try, and that's that's very human. Like they're trying they're trying to hang on to it. You have a a marvelous experience. You want to hang on to it, but inevitably, that pa time passes you by, and the experience is gone. Well, the, the church needed very much to hang on to the experience, not only in terms of the teachings of Jesus, which, which they could remember, and then the ones that they thought he would have said if, if they'd asked him, and, and uh, <laughs> that happened too, where they put teachings in his mouth. 
but also they wanted to preserve the experience so they could keep offering it time and time again. So for instance, the Eucharist, which is the, the communion service, the offering of the bread and the wine, where it's understood to be the body and blood of Christ, it's saying, we're going to bring that with us forward into the future. And we're going to keep doing this ritual over and over. And each time it does, then God is here in the midst of us, just like he was 2000 years ago. I want to say that's I understand the human need to do that, to kind of want to stop time. But then you're not open to where the Spirit is going now, which, mm. which may be built on that, but go in different places. And you're right, when they closed the book that we call the Bible, never again would it be added to. So any new experience we have now, we have to go back and find the precedence in the Bible. And that's why some conservative Christians say we can't possibly be blessing same-sex relationships because we can't find it in the Bible. It, well, have we not learned anything in 2,000 years? Has, has humanity not advanced? Has there not been a kind of a spiritual evolution such that for us, the issues of, of first century Palestine are not the issues that, that we have now? We've learned something, but no, the Bible doesn't say it's okay. And in fact, I, I heard a bishop an Anglican bishop once said, there's a reason it takes a long time for the church to change, because what if we get it wrong? And then he just happened to reference, for instance, the ordination of women. Well, there were women priests, my colleagues, in the room when he said it, and everyone thought, oh my God, you want to roll the clock back, turn the clock back on that? You're going to say, yeah, the reason we shouldn't have ordained women is because, you know, maybe we got it wrong. Because once you've made the decision and you're ordaining women, there they are in the room. You can't take it back. And to me, it just seemed this all has to do with a backward looking, you know, well, it's it's like. Um, okay, why why backward looking? Why? I think because I think it's it's essentially fear based. And, and and to be quite honest, Liz, I think there's a lack of faith that God has come to us apparently in the past. We can chronicle this. We have a Bible. We can talk about Jesus. Is that same God not still with us? Is that God not leading us into new places in the future? It seems it's fear-based because people are afraid to trust that the God who's been with us in the past is in fact still with us now and going to lead us into the future. And so it's, in that sense, in the worst sense, conservative. We're trying to conserve what we already know. And if, what, and if new knowledge comes along, if it doesn't conform to what we already know, then it's inadmissible. Mm. I, I think that's not a way to live a spiritual tradition where you're not being called into the future, you keep being called back into the past. Well, we're kind of not talking about something that feels like an important part of this conversation. And we haven't talked about it yet. I, I don't, I know you're like, you'll go anywhere, but, but there's also this other parallel track, maybe a parallel track is not the quite right way to say it, but there's this idea. What do you think about the idea that religion is a structure that's used to control the masses? Yeah. That, well, so that's, that's Marx's, view. Um, but I wouldn't impute a, a political agenda to this. It, it's like it's like when my kids talk with great cynicism right now about politics, and they talk about all of the people who are in control, and as if there's a world domination kind of thing happening. 
And what I say to them when they talk about that is, you know, you're giving way, way too much credit to politicians and other powerful people. They're not that smart. So I, I don't know. I, I guess in, in there'd be in some historical precedent where governments have, in fact, used religion as a kind of a shield and to keep people down. I think it's it's more within religion itself and within the church itself that the church has needed people to be compliant. The church has needed people to sit in the pews and just think of the architecture. They're sitting in pews looking forward, being instructed by someone who's up in a pulpit, which is several feet higher than them. It's like it keeps you as a student and even worse, as a child. You are a child of God. And when you come to church, who, who's preaching to you? If it's the Catholic tradition broadly, it's father. Father yeah. is going to tell you children what it is you're supposed to believe and how you're supposed to behave. So the church in that sense is controlling people by infantilizing them. It's keeping them as babies. And you step outside of that by asking questions. Like you want to put up your hand during a sermon and say, wait a minute, that doesn't make any sense. Then, then the church ushers are going to come forward and take you out. Because <laughs> So in that sense, I think the church and institutionalized religion is a, it's, it's a controlling um, environment and community where you're not encouraged to think freely. You can think what you want, but if you're going to think that, that, and that's not what the church believes, then really, you're not one of us. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So back to the, the question that I started um, a few minutes ago, with which is this question of, do I believe in God? And if I believe in God, then who is God? And so each of us have our own journey and arrival at some, or for me, in my experience, that is an evolving question. Um, And I have gone all over the place with it from absolute atheist to um, God is everywhere and in everything. So it's, it's an interesting, I think it's one of the most interesting things of being here and being human is that exploration. If you're exploring in your sovereignty, if you're allowing your curiosity to let you question everything you find. Because another thing that you and I have talked about is that the church is kind of structured to shut down wonder. Yeah. Like you've shared with me something from the Gospel of Thomas, which is a Gnostic gospel that did not make it into the Bible, but was recently discovered in the last century, and that it speaks to actually not having the answers following curiosity and following following it into the place where you're more confused rather than more clear as the path. So can you say more about this teaching that confusion is the path to wonder? Well, it, it, it's an, in a way it goes back to what you just said, Elizabeth, the, the church is not great for... Um, cultivating a sense of wonder. It, because when you have the answers, there's nothing to wonder about, yeah. right? It's just, you, you just believe the, you go to church, you do the things you're told, you believe the things you're told. Where's the wonder in that? Wonder can only exist when there's a sense of, I don't know how this works. I don't get this, but it's, it's undeniable. Yeah. And it could even be, so in the pre-scientific age, uh, when people saw the stars, the stars were animated because they would come out every night and people would think these are gods these, and they had a marvelous. So in the modern age, we might say, yeah, but now we know they're stars, you know, and it's just a lot of gas. 
that collected up mm-hmm. uh, up in space. But when I go out on a starry night, I still feel that childlike sense of, yeah, but look, look at it all. Yeah. So I, I think there is absolutely something life-giving when we allow ourselves not the, uh, to have the delusion of we need to understand everything, that, that we don't. We can just, we can absolutely love it because we don't understand how it works. And in fact, I've been told that many scientists themselves are lost in wonder, love, and praise, even though they know so much because they see how much they don't get. They still don't understand that the world has not shown itself completely to them. And that wonder leads them to curiosity to discover more. Yeah. It's interesting you say the world has not shown itself completely to them. And and I guess how I hold that is there is so much that I could never possibly see or understand or know at all, which points to the infinite creative vastness in which we're operating. It's the, the, the cosmos is so, so infinitely you'll never know. You'll never know in like your hundred years or whatever we get here on the, like, there's no way. And and so wonder is being in relationship, yeah. like a, 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 a wow, wow, there's just so much I'll never know at all. Like that's wonder yeah. versus let's figure out what it is, name it, yeah. and then operate aligned with what we know to be, which is the, the absolute opposite of creativity. The, yeah. the, there's no creativity if you already know, because y- yeah. you know. And, and so it feels like, the structure of the institution of religion is um, counter to to curiosity and creativity and wonder. Now, that's a big statement yeah. for me to make, having not ever aligned myself with the institution of religion. So I'm curious what you have to say about that. Yeah. And, and I think within the experience of the church, so Christians who are very much a part of the church and worshiping in their church and all that, there is still a, a there's, there are still lots of opportunity to have the experience of wonder. So around this time of year, if anyone has a memory of going to church on a Christmas Eve, the midnight mass, the lights go out, everyone has a candle, and by candlelight, the choir makes its way in, and there's a, maybe a plaintive voice of a child singing once in Royal David City, or maybe the congregation is singing Silent Night. I mean, it's, it, these rituals can take us to a place of wonder, because it isn't at that point about, we have the knowledge, we know. it has to do with there's a story we're trying to tell here that we don't completely understand. We don't, but the story is non-negotiable. So the Christmas story gets told as it is, as we get it in the Bible, even though that's not exactly true, because we have to patch together about three or four different books of the Bible to get the Christmas, <laughs> get the Christmas story. It's not packaged like people suppose it is. But that's, so I want to say that, that there is still those who are very much a part of the institutional church or any religion there is the possibility of wonder within that tradition. I just found it grew kind of cloying because I had bigger questions to ask and the church didn't want me. To. Here's a, here's, I got to tell you this list for two years, I lived on the coast. So I had the congregations, the Anglican and United congregations in Tofino and Ukulele. And um, while I was out there, these are very small congregations. I, in fact, I could do my job pretty much by Tuesday at noon. <laughs> What am I going to do the rest of the week? So I began to get involved in the community, and it it was a fabulous time. It was a great time. 
But I also began to pursue some uh, kind of esoteric interests. And one of those was in an airport once I picked up a magazine called Gnosis, and it's about esoteric spiritual traditions. And there was an article in that magazine by a Judy Harrow, and she was writing about the Wiccan experience. She was a, a priest or a priestess in a coven, a Wiccan coven in New York City. I read her article, and I thought, she's talking about some really important things which we've forgotten in the church, which was more nature-based. It was certainly egalitarian. And so I wrote her through the magazine and said, I'm an Anglican priest, but I'm really, really interested in, in this article and what you said. We began an intense email exchange that, uh, that lasted, because we were writing about every second day, it only lasted about a month, and then she was moving house, and, then, and we kind of lost touch. But she was very gracious and answer, was answering all my questions, because I was fascinated that just because the whole Wiccan movement in the church gets demonized, almost literally, like they're worshiping Satan and they're doing weird shit, like magic and stuff. But as I talked with Judy, and I, I've discovered since, she, she died a number of years ago, and she's written up on, she was a big name. I had no idea in that whole Wiccan movement. So I had this, this correspondence with her, and my mind was being blown in the best possible way, like they are exploring things that we have forgotten to explore. And she talked about the preparations the community did for a, a wedding they had done recently, where they brought in stuff from the natural world to be a part of the ceremony. And I thought, all the weddings I've done and the crepe paper and all the stupid stuff that we do in the West. And here they were trying to get back to its roots. How is the experience of a wedding ceremony grounded and rooted? Well, I loved it. I also knew this was not something I could ever you know, offer to my bishop. Oh, by the way, I found this this great um, Wiccan priest or priestess in in New York City, and I think she should come and you know and and talk to the clergy. I could never do that because it was out of bounds. Well, why should it be out of bounds? She was exploring something that we had lost, and I think we in the church needed Judy Harrow. And so you couldn't bring these wonders that you were intrigued by into the church, and so. Yeah you left the church so that you could follow your wonder. Yep. Yep. And increasingly when I did try to bring things in, it did feel like, uh, as I, as I said earlier, you know, going under the radar, we did a whole weekend on death and dying that had nothing to do with the resurrection of Jesus because I'd gone to a spiritualist church with my caretaker at the church. Uh, and I said, I'm going to go to your church sometime. So I went one Wednesday night and it was a spiritualist church, which means they talk to dead people. And while I was, so it, and it, it was done in a very civilized way. There was no woo-woo about it. They just came out and you know, the two ministers and each took a half an hour. And didn't my dead dad appear to me, I mean, not literally appear, but yeah. through one of the mediums, he described him. It was my dad. Oh, and, wow. You know, so I have this, you know, the, the, through the, the minister, I had this experience of reconnecting with my dad so that it became very real to me. This wasn't just theoretical. So about six months later, I organized a, a weekend where we, we brought together all sorts of people who anecdotally could, could help us understand what happens when we die. It was not teaching the Christian faith, which says when we die, we're resurrected, you know, go to heaven, whatever. This was saying, yeah, but what's our experience at the, on this side? And so we had hospice workers, we had a death and dying doula. Uh, we had the ministers from the spiritualist church who, in the chapel of our church, <laughs> in the Anglican church, were giving readings. You know, they were giving, they were, 
they were having readings from the spirits of the dead to people. (laughs) Well, at the end of this weekend, which was extraordinary, like people loved it. This young woman came uh, up to me to thank me. And she said, in my church, we're not allowed to go to spiritualist churches. But she said, I sometimes sneak off and I go anyway. But you're doing this right in your church. She said, thank you for doing this. Well, what I couldn't say to her was, yeah, but I'm really not allowed to. And I'm probably not going to get away with it much longer. Well, that's the kind of thing that, you know, you don't want your bishop to know. Having spiritualists reading messages from dead people in a, in your church. But even my congregation loved it. I mean, I just knew we were on this. If, if you've said this kind of thing many times, if you follow your curiosity, how can it be wrong? Follow your curiosity and we're all going to grow and we're all going to drop a few notches in terms of the depth of our experience and, and of our journey. But if an institution is saying, no, no, don't follow your curiosity, follow what we tell you, Already, it's just, it's limited the field. So, who I know you to be in the short time that we've known each other, but we've had some pretty wonderful deep dive conversations. And who I know you to be is you're so curious because you said I have these bigger questions. What are yeah. your What are some of your bigger questions that you're tracking? Um, I think a persistent question, which will never get answered in this in this lifetime, is simply, how does it all work? Because, and so I like I listen to a podcast like yours, and I, I'm all the way through. I'm going, yes, yes. When we open, it's like we have to open to the future, to whatever is life is presenting to us. And if we step forward, we will grow. We will learn something in this stepping. But we're only ever given a step or maybe two. We're n- we never see the game plan. We never see the whole thing. So I wonder, behind all of these individual invitations that we are given in our lives to go deeper, to go further, is there, in fact, and this goes back to the question of, of God, is there some willing, some kind of intelligent being force behind it all? You know, like, is is there someone with a plan for my life or is the plan for my life whatever reveals itself to me next? And that's what it is. So the big question is, is the church right that God is behind it all as a person who's who's kind of pulling all the strings so that, or is it just the divinity of life itself that it will keep opening to you? And when you take the next step, you'll learn then what you need to learn before you take the next step. I'm rather drawn to that rather than the idea of there is a person named God behind it all with minions going out on God's behalf. Although there, I know that there are lots of traditions that talk about we have guiding spirits who are invested in our, in our well-being. So, I mean, I'm open to all that. But the big question is, is someone behind it all or is this just the nature of life itself. Yeah, is someone behind it all? And you're saying person, but I feel like what you're really saying is entity. Yeah, like yeah. a like a structural figure. Yeah. That's yeah. It, it, because so I, I want to tell a story because this is this is it's such a thing to grapple with. So I was I was absolutely atheist for much of my early life. And also anti-authoritarian. So those two things probably are not (laughs) 
<laughs> separate from each other. Yeah. And, and, and then when I got sober and when I first got sober, I went to AA and in AA, they say came to believe in a, in, in a power greater than Better myself power. that, yeah. um, and, and, and I was like, bunch of like fucking religious fanatics trying to bring me into the fold, like both my arms and feet straight out, like, no, I'm not going, you can't make me. And so I would go to the meetings because I really was committed to um, figuring out how to stop drinking. And this seemed like nothing else I had tried had worked. So I'm going to give this my whole shot, but the whole God thing, I don't know. I don't like, I don't like that part. Why does that part have to be in there? And then maybe about three months into my sobriety, I'm lying in bed one morning and I have a, a very tall window in my bedroom, like with, with a big V on the top. And there was a fly that kept flying around the room and then going onto the window and then circling, circling, circling on the window because it was trying to get outside. And, I, and, and then it would get tired and it would fall to the windowsill and then it would buzz around the room and then it would come back and repeat. And yep. I'm watching it. And I'm thinking, what if the fly is the alcoholic and the pane of glass is alcohol Mm -hmm. and the flies trying to get through the pane of glass to get to this big, expansive whole world out there, which made sense to me because in my experience, addiction is both, it's a paradox. You're both trying to numb something and you're trying to feel more deeply at the same time. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and so if that is so in this scenario, then I can see the folly. I can see there's no way that that fly is going to get where it's trying to get the way that it's trying to get there. So yeah. what if I'm God in this scenario? Like yeah. I, I can understand that there. There is a differential in perception and awareness and and capacity to understand the bigger picture. So something just broke open for me there of, well, that kind of a God I could believe in, like whatever that means. And then I thought I'm going to help the fly. So I go get a glass from the kitchen and I come back up because I'm going to try and capture it and take it outside. And so, but it's going around and around and all over the place, but finally it comes close enough. I put the glass over it, but it's just circling the rim of the glass. It won't fly into the glass. And I'm holding the glass thinking if you would just surrender, (laughs) like if you would just, just come on in to the glass, I'm going to help you get exactly where you want to go. And, and so eventually the fly flies into the glass and I put my hand and take it downstairs and open the door and, and let it go out. And that for me was a real pivot in, of course, I am limited in my vantage point. I can't possibly know the whole of everything. And it is entirely possible that there is some operating force that holds kind of all the wisdom and all the knowing. And I went down that road for a couple of years. I went, okay, I'm going to just, I'm throwing it in. I'm going to believe in God. And I, and I did for a couple of years, but where I eventually got to, cause I want to just check this out with where you're at now in this, where I eventually got to was it's still, it still holds me as deferential to it 
or less mm-hmm. powerful than it, like it's a singular authority, it's an external authority figure. Yeah. And so that's yeah. where I start to get with this whole thing about a plan and a and all of that for me is yeah. it it takes you out of your own sovereignty and out of responsibility for your part for your expression in the field. Yeah. So that's kind of where I'm at now is I am God. God is me. It there is way more capacity of wisdom and knowing and understanding that the force of the universe is unfolding in this profound truth. Yeah. Meaning it doesn't work at odds with itself. It doesn't work against itself. Everything is a a, a a response, a creative response that's always beautifully answering whatever's happening. That's yeah. kind of how I hold the universe. And I'm a part of that. And, yeah. and there isn't a separate being that then has an opinion about what I'm doing or not doing. So that's yeah. where I'm at with, I, I don't think that I would call it God, but I would call it the, the, the something bigger. And so I, where are you at? Like, what do you think of that story? And where, where are you at? That's, that's a really good story. So I think, so two things. One is when you talk about the AA tradition, in my role as a priest, I heard literally hundreds of fifth steps and, and the fifth step of the 12 steps it's it's kind of like a moral inventory of one's life, right? So then your fifth step, you talk about your resentments, uh, your fears, your sex conduct, and it is as close as some as many people will ever get to confession. And it's brutal because you're counseled within the you're you're not going to hold anything back. So I, I just became one of the go-to people for people in the twelve step movement, and so I would hear easily one a week, one fifth step a week. So that meant over hundreds of these stories. Which, which I heard, one of the themes that came through over and over again was people like yourself saying, I just, you know, God, do I have, I don't know, I don't know about God, but the stories were uniform that when they said, okay, I'm just going to, I'm just going to believe this, I don't know who God is, I don't know what my higher being is, but I'm going to start to trust. The moment that shift happened within them, they began talking about miracles, coincidences, Things they're thinking about suddenly coming true. Their mind is thinking, I should call so-and-so. They call them. There's a reason they should be called. It almost felt like they had stepped into a universe where now they were part of it. They were an integral, just which they were part of the universe, but it required something of them up front to yield, to say, okay, okay, I can't figure this all out, so I'm just going to trust. So the, the second thing, is if that's to the degree that that's that that actually works, and I I have no reason to think it doesn't because I saw hundreds of stories where this was true. I think there is when we are in awe of something, there is a natural deference that's part of that. It's not obedience. That's different. Obedience is you're going to tell me what to do and I'm supposed to do it. I mean, some of us and I, I'm the same as you. That's not going to get me to do what you want. But when there's a sense of awe, and, I, and I'm drawn, I am drawn to this mystery, I do feel open in a way that, well, it's, and I, what is the, the line of that song from Leonard Cohen about, um, tell me where you want your slave to go, your slave. 
when you are on the pre- in the presence of what feels like divine mystery, our only response is, oh my God, mm-hmm. tell me what you want me to do. Yeah. You open the door and I'll walk through. I've had, some of my more recent prayers have been that, it really have just been that, open the door and I'll walk through it. But I can't open this door. I don't know enough. You open the door and and there and I'll be there. So I, th- there is a kind of a deference that isn't it isn't groveling. It's not saying I am unworthy. It's not it's none of that stuff. It's just saying there, I'm in the presence of a mystery and I should take off my shoes and get on my knees. This is awesome yeah. in the best in the best sense of the word. Yeah. Well, I feel like what you're speaking to is willingness. It's it's not even, I have an issue with the word surrender, but there's an allowing, there's a, a willingness to be led by something that yes. holds a much bigger vantage point than yes. you do, of which you are a part. Uh, yep. And which you're collaborating with and which you're co-creating with. And 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 that thing that you just said, open the door and I will step through it, feels like I, I want to show up in my full creative expression yep. And, yep. and and let you, you, whatever, God, the universe, yep. the creative force, whatever we call it, let you kind of, you and I merge so that I get all of you moving through me, right? And I don't know what's going to get created by that yes, by saying that yes. You know what I would say? What I love about that is from the other side, whatever we're talking about in terms of this divinity, what I read is that side, whether we call it God, the universe is also saying, I'm really curious what you're going to do with this. Yes. Right. As yes. opposed to this is what you're supposed yes. to do. It's more like, would you please come through the door? Cause I want to see how, what we're going to create next. We're that's the whole yeah. thing that, yeah, I, think so. yeah I, I love how you said that. It's so true because, and I'm really noticing this with the mandalas. It's the, the muse is one way of, of saying it or God yeah. or, or the creative, whatever, but it's like, you feel something in you stirring you. And yeah. if you're listening, and this to me is tracking. Yes. If you're yeah. listening and you're saying yes to that, okay, yeah. I'm open to this and I'm curious about it. And then, like you said, you, you move in that direction and something starts to happen in response. And then it's, it, it's this piggybacking thing where you don't know where it's going. And yeah. it's, that's the, that's the awesomeness. That's the, I don't know where this is going. And then when you eventually get somewhere, you're like, holy shit. Wow. Yeah. And you, well, let, let me tell you when I, when I left the church, so I retired to a natural leaving, but I, I retired into oblivion. It's like, I, I don't, I've been a part of the church my entire life. So what is my community now? Yeah. And and there's many people in the church I've kept in touch with because they're my good friends. So we're not going to lose touch with each other. But I needed to sort of close the door on that community and say, who else is out there now? And my greatest fear, I think, was the isolation of being in the world alone without what I had known as it. I had a ready-made community my entire life. Yeah. Every time yeah. I go to a new congregation as a priest or, or as even, even as a kid when my family moved around, Instant community. It's like you've got your small town waiting for you and they welcome you everywhere you go. What's happened in the last three years by pursuing the things I love to do, the music has introduced me to a whole new community of musicians and people who love music. 
I, I'm a writer. So the more uh, writing I've done, that's how uh, I met a common friend, uh, Jessica. Now I, I know I'm part of this community of writers. Then last year I started podcasting. I've met you and I've met a whole network of people who are doing this out of the spirit of exploration. I just want to, I'm curious. I just want to explore this. So my fear was I was leaving community behind and that, and maybe it'll never be replaced. Maybe I'll become a lonely old man, embittered. That's not what happened. There was a whole new community that I couldn't have met as long as my entire life was wrapped up in the church. And it's a wonderful community because I'm meeting kindred spirits everywhere I go. And I'm go and and their curiosity, like yours, like when, when I listen to your podcast, it sort of it reflects back on me, like, wow. And what am I exploring? What am I saying yes to? What where am I going this week? We and we kind of spark off one another. Yeah. So so for me, that was just this this wonderful discovery that there is new life waiting on the other side. When we take that next step or walk through the door, there's new life. We can't possibly know before we go there. You got to go there. Yeah. You got to go through the door. Yeah. And going through that door requires not being fixed to what you have previously known to be true. Like that's what curiosity is. That's what creativity is. I can know stuff, but I'm not fixed to it. I let it just peel off behind me as I go. And if I need it for where I'm going, it'll, it'll stay with me. It'll come with me. I have a word for that, that I've brought with me. I think it's faith. Mm. The faith that I'm going to take the next step that I feel called to take. I don't know where it's going to take me. Faith is the courage to act without the knowledge to know what's going to happen. And and in church land, it gets all confused, faith and belief. Get, like, just believe. People say, faith is just believing what you're supposed to believe. That's not faith. Yeah. That's obedience. Yeah. Faith is actually acting when we don't know the consequences. And the faith has to do with a, a confidence that ultimately the universe is a place that will welcome and encourage my participation, even when things don't go well. If things don't work out, I've still learned something. Yeah. So, I mean, it, I would not bandy the word faith around. I, I, I say there like as I, I was smiling as you were talking, thinking, she's talking about faith. Yeah. She's talking about yeah. the faith to step through the door. Well, and the faith, I, I love that you're, you're, you're bringing this word in because we have the faith to move when we don't know because of what we do know, which for me is I'm a creative being in a creative field, loved, yeah. supported, collaborating. Like that's all I have to have faith in. And then I don't need to know anymore yeah. Yeah. Be, because there is a, a sense of, I hate to use this term because it's becoming so cliche, but friendly universe, friendly versus yeah. like, what if it's not okay? And what if a thing, what if I make a, like, no, yeah. the universe is on my side. Like we're all, same team. We're all on the same yeah. team here. And wants us to participate in whatever, whatever it's, it's doing. It's not malevolent. It's not out to get us. And I also think what helps in these kind of faithful, courageous steps into the unknown is the number of times we've done it before, because it starts to become just a way of life, right? It's like, this has never let me down before. I have stepped out in the dark before. And yes, even if it didn't go as I anticipated, it was okay. Yeah. It was okay. It was a worthy thing to do. So we begin to develop a, 
um, a kind of repertoire where we can say, it's it hasn't always gone the way I thought it would, but it's always taken me further. And here I am because of that. And so, you know, we risk, we risk again, we risk again. It's like people who've been been hurt in love, you know, that that uh, the risk is is even bigger that they would say, I'm never going to love again. That's that's it for me. I'm I'm done. Well, just try, you know, life will come along, someone will come along and and here you are all over again, falling again. There's a part of us that refuses. Well, I guess it's, you know, when somebody decides they're not going to risk anymore and they will make no more um, courageous steps into the dark, I think it's a form of dying. We've just decided to bring the walls in, make our world smaller, kind of like the, the church in its worst expression, a small place where it's all familiar. I'm not going to do something that's going to be, uh, we become risk averse. And I think we begin to shrivel up. Yeah. Yeah. That's beautifully said. There is, there is a, if you, if you are willing to move into the mystery, that is an expansive move. Yeah. Yeah. It, that's, a, that, that is full yeah. of aliveness. You get bigger. You get bigger. Yeah. 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 Brian, thank you so much for this conversation and 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 for just speaking to this this trust to keep following your finding your own personal mythology, tr yeah. trusting your own trajectory as you're open to all the cues that are coming from around you. And and yeah. it's just such an invitation for all of us to just stay in a state of wonder, stay living in a state of wonder. So yeah. I so appreciate yeah. hearing your story about this. Well, thank you. And, and, and thank you for the work you're doing on the podcast, on tracking yes. Because uh, every time I listen, it makes me smile. <laughs> like part of it is you because you are so enthusiastic. But also it just in, it invites me. It, it helps remind me to stay open, remain open to whatever's next. Thanks, Brian. And I want to tell the listeners about your podcast, which is called the Mystic Cave. And it's really an ongoing, um, like narrative almost of like with interviews with other people, but your quest yeah. is being yeah. poured through the podcast. H how would you say it? How would you say what's what is your podcast about? Well, what I say about it, the pre recorded portion <laughs> that pops up every time is that the Mystic Cave is a sanctuary, which is a church language, obviously a sanctuary for the seeker. Stories, conversations, and reflections about the spiritual journey on the other side of Churchland. But here's my image that I have of what I do. Every church chooses some people to be the greeters at the door. So, you know, if you go into a church, there's somebody that has been invited to greet you, make you feel welcome. If you need a hymn book, they're going to give you a hymn book. If you've never been there before, they'll say, can I show you to your seats? There's ushers as you come in. I feel like I'm the, the greeter on the other side of the door as people are leaving church. <laughs> <laughs> I'm there to greet them and say, um, welcome, welcome to the world. There are all these great resources here that I would love to introduce you to. And there's possibilities here. And I hope you'll check in with me again because I have all these new discoveries and I'm, I'm eager to, to share them because not only is God in there inside the doors of that church, God's out here too, and has always been. So for me, 
it's a little bit um, uh, maybe seditious when it comes to the church, but I feel there needs to be someone greeting you on the outside as you leave church. And so a lot of my listeners have tended to come from some kind of religious tradition and feel lost. The church has disappointed them one way or hurt them. In some cases, I get the letters when people talk about how hurt they've been by the church and they wonder what's next, what's out there. But that's what I love to be able to offer is here's a safe place for you to be a seeker. It's safe not to know where you're going and what you're about. But look at all these people I can introduce you to and all these possibilities. So that's really what the podcast is about. Yeah, your your podcast is like, um, it's like creating a map that's an ever-growing map and then yeah. plotting all these places on the map, like all these places to explore in the yep. spiritual journey. So that's absolutely true. I will, Thanks. I will link, I will link to your podcast and I highly recommend you guys going over there and checking out a few of the episodes because you are interviewing the most interesting people and, and such a diversity of people. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like I feel, I feel like you have this spiritual core, the center that you feel I experienced you to be very grounded in a sense of spirituality. And mm -hmm. then you're just expanding out in all these different directions from it and mm -hmm. offering the things you're finding as you go. Yeah. 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 Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Thanks so much, Brian. Been my pleasure. Thanks, Liz. And also, you guys, Brian interviewed me for his podcast a couple months ago, and he's going to be publishing that episode on January 9th. And you are such a good interviewer. I shared stories that I have never shared publicly before. And I was able to speak to Tracking Yes in new ways. And, and I found myself saying things about Tracking Yes that I didn't even know until I said it. It, it was a super fun and awesome interview. And when it comes live, so it's not going to come live till nine days after this one goes live. But when it does, I'll come back to the show notes and post the link for it. Or you can just keep an eye on Brian's podcast, The Mystic Cave, and that's when it's going to be live. Thanks for joining us today, everyone. If you like the show, I'd so appreciate it if you could subscribe and share it with people you think would love it. It's an unpaid labor of love, and your support encourages me to keep it coming. You can find show notes, leave comments, and sign up for my newsletter at the podcast website, trackingyes.com. And you can find more of my work in the world at my coaching website, lizwilson.com. Talk to you next time. And in the meantime, have a great week and keep your compass lined up with yes.